You're listening to The Wanderers Podcast, Episode 10. Arabella McIntyre-Brown is one of the few writers in Romania who have met the Romanian president in person. She is also one of the even fewer people who have managed to make the president laugh. As soon as you meet her, you immediately understand why. Equipped with a sharp wit, an even sharper tongue at times, and full of charm, Arabella has brought the best of her British background on her path and added a Transylvanian twist to her journey. She is a creative soul spending her time deep in the Carpathian Mountains, writing, crafting, and being close to nature. In this episode, Arabella and I go into what her definition of peace is and how she has found it in Transylvania. We discuss the impact of the lockdown in Romania, the similarities between Magura and rural West Sussex, where she grew up, Romanians' dark humor, how she does not consider herself a storyteller, and much more. Get comfy and enjoy this rich and meditative conversation. Hello, hello, Arabella. Hello, Daniela. How are you doing on this fine day? Fine. I've been gardening this morning. Um, and then I had an unexpected visitor who dropped in with some shopping. It's a bright, sunny day with some clouds and a little bit of wind. It's lovely. It's spring. I'm always happier with spring. So it's a good day. I also wanted to ask, since you've been gardening, it must mean that you have some nice weather around. It's uh, For the last few weeks, It's been the sun has been really warm. But the wind and the air is has been cold. I mean, um, I lost, I bought some plants from Lidl the other day, including some basil, buzuyok, and um, left it out, not thinking. And today the buzuyok is mush because it, there must have been a, a freezing night. Um, so it's still early spring. Yeah. <laughs> the basil um, prepared itself for the pesto. <laughs> exactly. I love basil. I, I use it in all sorts of things, but um, not anymore. I'll have to buy some more. I didn't think it's in England. There's a saying. Um, well, in Yorkshire, there's a saying: "Ned cast a clout till may be out," um, which means don't throw away. You know, throw off your winter clothes before the end of May because there are unexpected frosts. Well, it's the same here, and I forgot like a fool. Anyway. <laughs> But yeah, thank you. I'm good. I'm good. I'm, I'm enjoying. So people can already pick up the fact that you are from England and that you have a very particular sense of humor, which we will go over in the next questions of, uh, of our talk. But first things first. So if people Google your name, one of the first pictures that they will see of you is quite an enchanting sight, as in, in the picture, you're wearing a dark colored coat, you wear a dark tall hat, and are literally wrapped in light, aka blue Christmas lights. So that is quite a scene. Can you tell us more about that picture? Yeah, I mean, I can I can lie and make up a fairy story, or I can tell you, tell you the honest truth. <laughs> I'll tell you the honest truth. <laughs> Which one do you prefer? <laughs> I needed some decent photographs um, of myself, because I don't have any. And a friend of mine is one of the best portrait photographers in Romania, Matej Muzza. 
He's brilliant. And he very sweetly said that he would take my photograph. So we spent the entire day. It was such fun. It was, I, I mean, I hate having my photograph taken normally, but he made it a lot of fun. It was lovely. He says that he's half a lighting engineer and half a psychologist. <laughs> okay. Well, it's important that your subject is relaxed. and you know. Anyway, so I wore, it's not a coat, it's just a black jersey, and I've got my, my hat on, um, my black hat. And when I was going down to Bucharest, I was looking at hats and props and things to wear, different clothes, and I suddenly saw a pile of fairy lights, Christmas lights, which are just white, actually. It's it's a tri- magic trick of photography, makes them blue. Um, and I thought that would be fun. So I took it all down and we did lots of different pictures. And I suggested the lights to Mate and he went, oh, and he draped me in light. Um, just wound the lights around my hat and around me. And there it was. It was lovely. It worked really well. I was very happy with it. It makes me look like a retired fairy godmother or something. Kids love it. I mean, some people love it. Some people find it a bit odd, but I love it. I think it's great. Um, it was it was just me looking for, for interesting things because I'm jumping about here. But I, I used to be a magazine, a business magazine editor um, when I lived in, in the UK. And by and large, the photographs one was sent by PR people were so boring. I mean, really, you know, send you to instant sedatives um, or hideous. And people obviously hadn't looked at them and hadn't seen themselves. And the photographer needed shooting. And I, so I had experience in how not to send a photograph. So I thought of ways to make it more interesting. Does it fit who I am on the inside? I, I couldn't possibly tell you. My impression of myself is different to other people's impression of me. Some people think I'm weird. I don't think I'm weird. I think I'm perfectly normal. If anyone's weird, it's the others. <laughs> I think we're all weird on the inside in one way or another. It's just a matter of how we wish to accept it and express it. Yeah, well, I think that I, um, you know, when I was younger, I, I wanted to please people. I wanted to be accepted. I mean, like most of us, you know, and tried to be a good girl and, you know, dress properly and behave properly. But the joy of getting, one of the joys of getting older is that all that stuff vanishes. You know, you think, what? No. Uh, excuse, I do swear a lot. I'm sorry. You know, as you get older, you realise that it's utter shite and you can discard it. It's wonderful. So you can be precisely who you wish to be. And if nobody else likes it, tough bananas. So that's, that's one of the many advantages of growing older, is allowing oneself to become playful, artsy. <laughs> we stand out that way anyway. You know, if you, if you, I, when I started writing books, I learned that I had to do something to make myself stand out from the thousand million others who are writing books. So being a bit odd and looking a bit odd um, is actually an advantage. And speaking of standing out... You definitely stood out with the one of the most important choices that you made in your life, which was to leave everything behind in the UK due to personal reasons and then move in Magura, a mountain village, right high up in the mountains, pretty secluded, by yourself. That is definitely, in a way, standing out from what people usually do. There are plenty of people who, you know, will go abroad, but 
somebody in Liverpool said, trust you, you know, most people go to the Algarve or the Provence and you have to go to Transylvania. It wasn't a deliberate decision to be weird. I mean, it wasn't, I wasn't being deliberately uh, difficult. I just came out here on a holiday and actually the reason that I love this so much and felt so instantly at home was that it was, it felt exactly like my bit of West Sussex where I grew up. And it took me a long time to work out why. And it's, I mean, this might be nonsense. A scientist might tell me I'm mad, but it's the geology. It's, I grew up on chalk, you know, in the South Downs in England. And this is limestone, which um, is harder, but it's the same stuff. It's calcium carbonate. It's the same stuff. And it grows the same plants. And, you know, I grew up eating plants based in this soil. So I absorbed lots of minerals from the soil and I it's the same here in the same way that pine forests and sandy soils make me feel really uncomfortable how come I'm struggling I don't know I can't give you a scientific answer I because you know I'm I'm a I'm a an alkaline person um I've been fed alkaline soil and you know on the vegetables that I eat and the fruit that I eat and the water that I drink um as opposed to an acid soil, you know, heathers and heath and heather and bracken and rhododendrons and things and pine forests, which I don't, I feel very uncomfortable. That's the only thing that I can think of. I, I've thought about it a lot because it's curious. But I do, I, as soon as I set foot on the path up to Magura, which is lime, limestone chippings, I just felt instantly comfortable at home. Weird, really weird. And that's the only reason I can think of. So if anybody knows better and can offer a different explanation, I'd be very happy to hear. What I find very interesting is that throughout all of these talks that I'm having for the podcast, everybody has, of course, their own reason for coming to Romania or having this special connection with the country. But I think I'm going to put yours in the top five most interesting ones. <laughs> well, I mean, there are, there are other pragmatic um, reasons it's it i mean this i bought my house here in 2005 saw it in 2004 and in those days it was extremely cheap to buy property here it's not so cheap now but it was ridiculously cheap compared to the uk so i could afford a place here i you know i've never had much money so a holiday home was out of the question but i could afford one here thanks to my sister um left me a little bit of money. But um, so, you know, the cheapness of, of living here is is an, an important thing. And it's very beautiful, peaceful. I've got a mountain right outside my window. And as I say, it feels like home. The people are the same as as the people I grew up with, you know, that they work on the land and, you know, they're, they're quite sharp. They may not be well-educated, but they're pretty sharp. Um, you know, they see very clearly. And they work hard, so all those things combined. But yeah, it was the it was feeling at home, that weird sense of being home. But an interesting point is that because you're an author and you have been going to all these kind of launches, events, meeting people from all over the country, from all different parts of social class, if you want to call it like that, you've been interviewed by many journalists, bloggers, critics, and regular folk alike, and. Indeed, the three most common questions that they ask you are, why did you move here? (laughs) If you like it here, and how long are you going to stay? So I'm curious to know, why do you think these are the most frequently asked questions that you get? And 
Did you learn anything about Romanians in particular because they asked these questions? Well, I was asked first, the first week I spent in, in Transylvania, I was staying in a, in a guest house in Zornesht. And the old lady, the, you know, the mother of the guest house owner, said, do you like it here? Do you like us? And I'd say yes and yes. And she said, she'd ask the question again, you know, do, do you like it here? Do you like us? Do you like the food? Do you like the place? She'd ask over and over again as if, and I'd say, yes, 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 I love it. I love it. Um, and even when I'd bought a place here, you know, the villagers um, that I'd meet or people in the market would say, do you like it here? And I seen it. And I, once or twice I'd joke and say, no, I hate it. And they'd look so stricken and upset that I, I don't do that anymore. I said, no, I'm joking. I'm joking. I bought a house here. I love it. Of course I do. And I, I felt that there was a massive... Um, I mean, when I first came, it was 2003, and I felt there was a massive lack of self-esteem, you know, in the country as a whole. You know, why would anybody want to come here? We're rubbish. Um, and or why would anybody want to learn Romanian? Who would speak the language except for us? And the language is not worthy to be learned or to be taught. It is a very interesting observation. It struck me because I was living in Liverpool. Um, and just as Romania was seen at one point and feel, felt itself to be the sort of the, the rough end of Europe, Liverpool was always the rough end of Britain. Um, you know, London hate, no, I'm serious. London hated Liverpool. Um, Liverpool had a reputation for being trouble, full of troublemakers and strikers and, you know, articulate shitsters. Although Liverpool gave some of the best metal bands that the world has ever seen, so... Yeah, but I mean, long before that, Liverpool was, was the second city of the British Empire. People either don't realise it or have forgotten it. It's the second city after London of the British Empire, not just Britain. It controlled, at one point, one-seventh of the world's trade. Not just British trade, the world's trade. I mean, Liverpool was a phenomenal city. Um, but had fall, fallen into difficult times. I, I, went, I could bore for England because I wrote a book about Liverpool, so I know a little bit. But it was a magnificent city and has regained itself a little bit because of the capital of culture, which was the year after CBU. It was 2007 and Liverpool was 2008. And, yeah, so suddenly Liverpool is cool again, uh, as it was in the 60s. But, you know, it went through massive political, social, um, economic, financial hardship. But it's bounced back, and and I think Romania's doing the same. But it's that it's that same uncertainty and lack of confidence that struck me in Liverpool and struck me here too. Um, so people needed reassurance, and they that's why they kept asking the same questions over and over again. Do you like it? Do you like us? Do you like it here? They didn't stop asking. They it's as if they didn't hear me or they didn't believe me. Now it's not so much the same. Now uh, there's more confidence, but I'm still unusual. Um, I mean, there are you know there are a couple of thousand Brits who have who live here now. I think, I don't know what proportion of people live here for, for the length of the contract, you know, corporate contract, you know, three years or five years, and then they move on. There are quite a number of people who live out in the, in the rural Romania. You know, they might be married to a Romanian or not. Um, they might be here for, for a, an NGO, charitable reasons, they, whatever. I mean, we're all here for different reasons but um we stay under the radar people don't know about us and i think when somebody like me gets on tv or gets interviewed it's still unusual 
you know, the hundreds of thousands of Romanians who've gone to Britain. There are fewer Britons who come to Romania to stay. So I think that's why they keep asking the questions. They don't, they don't understand why would somebody from the marvellous, mighty Britain, hello, want to come to little old Romania? And I can give them a whole list of question, uh, answers, but um, I think that's possibly why they're interested. Is this also a question that uh, President Johannes asked you when you met him? Um, no, he didn't, but he, I can tell you exactly what he said because I, you know, I remember what presidents tell me. Having met so many of them, um, he, I was introduced to him by the British ambassador, who was being brilliant and very supportive. And the president said, oh, and he was obviously, he was looking at me, thinking, you know, trying to think. And he said, might I recognize you from the TV, a documentary on TV? And I just laughed and said, yeah, it's quite possible. So, and I was so chuffed that he actually... I was surprised that he had time to watch television at all um, and very chuffed that he recognized me. So, yeah, that was fun. <laughs> Indeed. Meeting presidents can be very interesting because you can also see their personal approach aside from the whole institutional presence that they need to have on a daily basis. Yes, I, I made him laugh. I can't, I, I only vaguely remember. I just said something about wishing him luck with a in a tone of voice and with a raised eyebrow or something and it made him laugh and the ambassador said what did you say to him he never laughs <laughs> um i'm sure he does laugh a lot but um when you're on official duties i suppose it's harder to to take things so lightly anyway it was really nice it lasted for all of you know a minute and a half but it was um it was a lovely treat and going from tv interviews to your books Many people who have read your most important book, should I name it like that? Or most known book, Din Liverpool and Carpaz? It's certainly, I think the most important book was probably my first, which was called Liverpool, The First Thousand Years, only because it was the first and because it was a, an instant bestseller and, and sort of set me up in Liverpool as Din Liverpool and Carpaz has set me up in Romania. Um, but certainly it's it's the most recent and the most interesting in terms of people's reaction, yeah. Also in terms of your personal experience, right, being put in a book? Yes. Um, I originally, I knew this was a good story because enough people had said, why are you here, you know, as we've just spoken about. And I've been scribbling, I, you know, I've, I've always scribbled notes on the back of fag packets, not that I spoke, but orally speaking on napkins and scraps of paper and old notebooks and things, scribble little notes about people I've met or you know, listening to birdsong or whatever it might be, something stupid the cats have done. So I had all these this file of scraps of paper. And then I met a publisher who said, if you ever think about writing a book, let us know because we'd like to publish it, which is the most extraordinary thing to say to a writer. You know, most writers in America and, and UK and would would kill for that, you know, invitation. I happens. So that spurred me on to actually write the book as opposed to just writing notes. And my original plan for it was to just explain my personal experience of life in modern-day rural Transylvania. Not about not being about me, about being about the wildlife, about you know my interaction with villagers, about nature, about cats, about birds, about you know whatever. Focusing on not on people actually, um, and certainly not on myself. But the publisher said, "No, no, put in stuff about yourself. You have to explain why you're here. People will want to know." So. That's 
when I started writing about my background and you know, insofar as it connected with my life here. So I wrote about my childhood to explain why I feel so comfortable here and, and also as a, as a comparison with you know my, my neighbours' kids and their experience. So it wasn't originally intended to be an expose of my psyche, but the publisher encouraged me to do that. And it worked out well. It seems to work well, but it's also given me a whole new market to go at. So um, it was very good advice. Definitely. And I was reading through some of the reviews that you had, and most people have noticed a specific strength and vulnerability behind your words. And they also picked up your sense of humor, which we mentioned at the beginning of the talk. And my question is, what has the role of humor been in discovering your new home and Romanians in general? How did you put that British way of being into your discovery process of your new home? Uh, that's a question I can't answer. It's just me. You know, that's just the way I look at the world. It's not its not <laughs> something I put in. It just, I mean, I've got a fairly well-honed sense of the ridiculous and I've got a fairly well-honed sense of my own ridiculousness. <laughs> so, you know, I, I will, I, I've completely lost my sense of humour over this coronavirus thing. But, you know, I think if you can laugh at yourself, particularly, and, you know, idiotic things that I do and... The cats make me laugh, birds make me laugh. I mean, all sorts of things make me laugh. And it's just, you know, if I can just relate that honestly, that's where the humour comes from. But I, it's not something I consciously do. I'm thinking because Romania is kind of known for its more absurd take on humour and on life in general. I mean, it, it is the country that gave the world the whole Dada movement and the theatre of absurd as well with Eugenio Nesco. Yes, I'm thinking about a rhinoceros um, as you spoke. <laughs> it, Romanian humour is incredibly dark. You know, I've seen a few Romanian movies which are supposed to be comedies and I'm sitting there going, oh my God, this is not funny because it's so black. I mean, some of it is, of course, very funny, but it's very dark humour. It's, it's. I mean, it, you know, it, it takes somebody much brighter and much more well-educated than me to to start to explore it. But, um, yeah, it's, it's generally speaking, it's a much, much darker sense of humour than British. Even than British? Yeah, I mean, there's obviously some dark humour. I mean, there's, there's satire and cynicism in, in British humour, and we're quite good at laughing at ourselves. But there's, there's something very different about about whether it's an Eastern European thing, whether it's an ex-communist thing, I don't know. But there's, there's, there is a very dark sense of great darkness behind, behind a lot of the humour. We do have the expression to um, laugh about hardship or to laugh about dark phases in our life, afache has been a cause. And that I know for sure is imbued in a certain lifestyle and a certain attitude towards life. In a way, it's as if we Romanians expect the worst to happen and then the only thing that you can do about it is laugh in its face. So maybe that's where it comes from. I mean, at least that's that's a stem of the whole idea behind the dark humor of Romanians. But th this is interesting because you're not the first one to tell me that. I'm sure you're absolutely right. It, it obviously comes from, you know, from, from dark experiences that have gone on for, for generations. I mean, Liverpool is the same in terms of its humour stemming from tough times. It's, I, I love, you know, the fact that Liverpool as a city compared with Romania, the country, there are so many similarities. The humour, I mean, they, they had tough times, not so much politically, but there was an element of that. But, you know, people struggled for a long time. And But the humour tends to be kinder and funnier. I mean, you know, lighter. Uh, more farcical, a sense of the ridiculous 
but with a slightly sunnier outlook than the Romanian darkness. You need to speak to some, you know, a proper comedian who can who can explore this. It's fascinating. It is fascinating, but I don't know enough about it. And going from darkness to peace, one of the things that you mentioned is that you have found peace in Transylvania. This is something that you also mentioned in your book. I have two questions about that. Firstly, what does peace mean to you and how does it manifest in your daily life? <laughs> well, there's a, there's a naughty and very, very silly um, part of an answer, which I'll get onto in a minute. Peace, I mean, I'm sitting here uh, talking to you and I'm looking out of my window, one window, looking at the ridge of Piazza Crowley, just not very far away at all. I feel as if I could reach out and touch it. And that mountain's been there for a while. You know, it's it's been sitting there for 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 a few years and it's still going and it it reminds me of the permanence the permanence of the world and the the ephemeral nature of humanity and our silly lives you know we think we're so important and in a tiny way from time to time yes we are we do interesting things some of us but really you know we compared to the mountain or compared to an oak tree we we flit in and out of life very fast and Really, very few things really, really matter. Um, you know, the sun tends to come up the next day and the world tends to keep turning regardless of what humans might or might not do. So I think being here reminds me. But the first time I felt that was actually sitting uh, with a friend on a on a mountainside that looked over to Snowdon, which is Wales's highest mountain and one of the, the second highest mountain in, in Britain. Um, it's not as high as Piatra Praelu by any means. But we sat there looking at Snowden, thinking exactly those things, you know, the permanence of it and why why are we why do we make such a fuss? You know, why are we so concerned with our stupid little lives? So that was the first time I felt that noticeably. But it's it's something daily. I look out of the mountain every day because I live here. Yeah, it just reminds me, it puts me in my place in a nice way. You know, I'm just one little tiny part of a jigsaw. So that's quite good for peace of mind. Um, but there is another side of it, which is not admirable at all. Some people might understand it. A lot of people will be sitting there tutting, thinking, useless woman. It also <laughs> means that I, you know, I sit up here feeling invulnerable, you know, as if the, quote, real, unquote, world can't reach me here, you know. So the world of bills and money and tax and ill health and coronavirus and politicians and all the hideous things we have to go through, they can whistle because <laughs> I'm up here and I'm safe and um, I can sit in splendid isolation and the world can get on with itself, which, as I say, is not an admirable attitude or very clever or very organised, but honest. So those are my two main aspects to the word peace. And indeed, solitude plays a central role in both your book and your daily life. For some people, indeed, living like a hermit or having a hermit lifestyle is not necessarily what they think as their dream life, but it works from some other people. So how do you relate to this newly found solitude and what, how, what role does it play in your life? Oh, it's not newly found at all. I mean, even living in the middle of Liverpool, you know, I, I lived, mostly lived alone, apart from a cat or two. But I could be, I could be, it could be days or even weeks, you know, if I without seeing anybody apart from going down to the shops to get a 
But I mean, you know, any meaningful social exchange. And I grew up in in a place like this, you know, fields and meadows and woods and rivers. And I, I'd spend days and days on my own, you know, um, until the age of 10. My mother didn't know where I was. I was out having fun with a friend or on my own. So I've been, I've, I'm used to solitude and I like it. Um, not all the time. I couldn't be a hermit forever. You know, I need, I need some interaction and I like people. But I also can only cope with them for a little while. After a while, a lot of people who call themselves introverts will say the same thing, that they might like a bit of society, but they have to go away and find a quiet space to recharge, you know. So that's that's me all my life. It's not newly found. But what's very, very interesting is how people are reacting with the lockdown of coronavirus, you know. And I think a lot of people are really struggling. You know, people people haven't been able to prepare for it. They're just, you know, and they and a lot of people are stuck, you know, not where they're supposed to be at all. They can't move. I look out of my window and I've got space, you know, I can go out into the garden. I've got a decent sized, uh, you know, it's not, it's less than one acre, but it's it's more than enough to be able to go outside and sit in the sun and do some gardening and walk around and get exercise. And I just don't know, people with families, particularly lots of young kids, stuck in a city apartment, I don't know how they're coping. I really don't. And then people who are used to being with friends or family and have to be on their own. I think, you know, it's, it's going to be a, a really tough time for some people. It is. It is. I mean, from the psychological perspective, it's as if you said people who are used to their daily life, their daily routine of, you know, grabbing a coffee, going to work, socializing, doing something in the evening. And then you suddenly put them in a seven day silent meditation retreat. <laughs> it's the shock can be quite withstanding on on the psyche of people and for that for example i was actually researching a little bit and i found this group of psychologists like around a thousand psychologists in romania that are offering services for free during this lockdown because they understand the the consequences that such a unprepared move can have on people like for some people it literally feels like they are in jail yeah, or in hell. I mean, you know, it's I I can imagine that it would be really unimaginable because they have no warning. You know, suddenly, wallop, it happened. Um, so there's no ability to plan or to prepare. And, you know, if your relationship, if, for instance, you know, you're married but not terribly happily, you know, I'm surprised the murder rate hasn't already risen, <laughs> to be frank. No, that has not, as far as I understood, people were expecting a rise in domestic violence, but no official numbers have come in yet. Yeah, I think it'll be a while before that, that comes in. And maybe people are finding ways to cope. I don't know. It'll be really, really fascinating to see how people change or don't change, how they react once lockdown is over and once coronavirus is, is behind us. Because it's only a blip. I mean, it's, only, it's been a month, just a month since the state of emergency was declared, I think. 23rd, yeah. So it's been no time at all, but it's felt like a lifetime to some people. <laughs> for many, for many indeed. I, you know, I normally go shopping. I venture down to Zadanesh for shopping once a week, but now it's once a month. So, you know, big deal. <laughs> you know, so life for me carries on exactly as normal, but not other people's lives have been ripped to shreds. Indeed. From that perspective, one thing that I can appreciate the lockdown one reason is that more people have found this space to pause 
and to be with themselves and to maybe even pick up different projects, passion projects that they've wanted to pick up for a while. And now they have the space, which again, I think, of course, not everybody has that luxury. If you think about doctors and nurses that have to be on call for so many hours and in such conditions, of course, for them, the lockdown is, is proving to be something else. But for the rest of the people, I do feel like at least some have that opportunity to go and slow down from a pace that they didn't feel it was theirs. Yeah, I think that's true. I think that the, the one thing that might get in the way of that is, you know, people who have lost their jobs or are otherwise, you know, financially struggling. I think probably most of their mind is focused on, on you know, the financial aspects of life and just getting enough to eat, you know, not in Romania so much, but I read a, a, a piece from the New York Times, I think, yesterday about how much of the world is really going to struggle with starvation because they can't get, they can't afford the food um, and, the, and the supply chains are being disrupted and so on. So, I mean, yes, to have the luxury to take up a hobby or, you know, learn to draw or to relearn how to play the piano or sit in silent meditation and work out what's going on is is a real luxury. And I'm, I'm, I hope that lots of people are taking advantage of that because it is a real chance. Not everyone is so lucky. Or just taking a holiday, getting to know your kids, you know, getting to know your spouse again. Um Reading a lot of books. I've heard accounts of uh, of mothers, and actually one of them is is uh, one of the guests for the second season of the podcast, uh, Elena. She said in in our talk that she finally has the time to play with the child because before she would just you know maybe just go to the tablet or make the kid do something and keep him busy while she is reading the news or handling business, but now she actually has the time to look at what the child is doing, acknowledge bond so indeed it's interesting that in a crisis of course in a crisis the what is happening is awful that is the definition of a crisis but all of these glimpses of light they do make it a bit more hopeful and indeed some some of our behaviors need to change anyway it's just that now it got kind of accelerated into hopefully a good direction yeah it's i i really really hope that the world takes advantage of the opportunity we've been given to rethink some things. I mean, the, the Mother Earth has been very, very clever because I think it's all her doing. You know, conspiracy theories are all very well, but I reckon it's good old Mother Nature because this virus has only affected the human race. No other race on, 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 the, on the Earth, no other species has been affected. And, you know, the Earth is taking a very deep breath for the first time in centuries. You know, we're not shaking it to pieces. We're not polluting it so much. You know, it's as if Mother Nature has said to us, naughty humans, you know, go to your room and think things over and only come out when you've worked out what you've done. I think it's magical. And, you know, pollution levels are down. Seismic activity is down, you know. And I just hope, hope, hope that we don't just immediately go back to grabbing money and grabbing stuff and, you know, going back to these wicked old ways. I hope that more people will realise that actually if you have kids, the, the fun thing to do is actually to, to enjoy them rather than just handing them to a childminder. And that money's not the be-all and end-all. Stuff is not really important, you know, that actually being able to... The number of people who have turned to home baking or even cooking their own food at home... You know, on Facebook, I see so many people saying, oh, I put on eight kilos, I'm fat as a pig. But they love it. They really <laughs> enjoy it. So there are there are a lot of benefits to be coming out of this. But obviously, you know, a lot of people are dying and a lot of key workers are, are risking their lives for us every day. So double-edged sword. Thank you. 
cats and everything else. But it would be really lovely if things actually changed for the benefit, for the better, because, you know, we realised that there were good things to be had out of this. I'm not confident at all, but some people will. Some people will, and I do think that people respect slowing down a lot more. I think if there is one lesson to be learned out of this whole situation is to slow down. Yeah, and slowing down, you know, depends on who's driving us, on what for, you know, why are we being driven to make money for other people, you know, political advantage. You know, there are some... Social status. Yeah, all that nonsense. Um, I, I, I will mention um, Jacinta Ardern, you know, the, the Prime Minister of New Zealand, because she is handling this brilliantly, you know, maybe because she's got a young baby. Maybe it gives her different priorities, I don't know. But, you know, if we could, if we, if you were all so lucky as to have a Jacinta Ardern in, in charge of our politics in our country, that would be magical. And there are, there are other women running countries who are doing the same. I mean, Angela Merkel is, is doing what well, has done for ages. I mean, she's, she's an extraordinary person. And, but there's the woman who runs the president of Croatia, whose name I've forgotten, and the Scandinavian women running things. I mean, you know, there, there are a lot of very interesting new politicians. And if they could drive things in a different direction, that would be something else. That would be miraculous. Well, the interesting part is indeed we need to still wait and see exactly what this whole mess will bring us because nobody knows. That is the interesting part. Nobody knows. We are looking at the unknown, literally. Yeah, and humans being so adaptable and clever, you know, necessity is the mother of invention and all that. People are coming up with phenomenal solutions to things that we didn't even considered to be a problem before you know so so the inventiveness of the human species can come to the fore and might make some lasting changes who knows as you say nobody knows we're 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 all blundering around in the dark we're all in this together (laughs) if i think it's the first time because not only are we all going through this virus thing, but we've got communication. We can talk about it to people all over the world. We can compare, we can see, we can connect. Yes, and we couldn't do that in 1918, which is the last time there was such a bad viral pandemic. You know, you, you didn't have that. You had newspapers and that was it. But now we, we can talk to people all over the world that we've never met before. And that will make a difference. And, oh, well, I hope it will. Very interesting times. Indeed. That makes me think of the next question that I wanted to ask you about the adventurous side of life, if this can be looked at as in this in this light. But bringing it back to you, you did have quite some adventures in your own life as well, going through changes, transformations and everything. And that I wanted to ask if that is what inspired your passion for storytelling or if there was something else that pushed for it. I think, I don't know, I, you know this sort of self-analysis I've never done. I, I mean, I get grabbed by snippets of stories or just snippets of things that happen or people, things that people do. Tiny things, you know, it might be a word in a bus that you overhear some person talking about. It might be, I mean, there was a, I've not done anything about it. I'm giving this title away, which is not a good thing. But I was staying at a friend's house and her daughter, who was about eight at the time, came downstairs in the morning for breakfast and said, Mommy, Mommy. And, you know, because she was looking tired and, and my friend asked what the problem was. Oh, it was the raspberry nightmare. It was the raspberry nightmare. And that just, I mean, I, I immediately started working on a book with the title of The Raspberry Nightmare because it was just, it was just so intriguing. Why? You know, what? what? <laughs> 
So if something strikes me and I keep asking what for, what, why, you know, just constant questions like that, then I reckon that's a story worth exploring. So that's what grabs me. It's not a desire to communicate anything. I've written a few stories, books for children. And the first one was about dragons and talking mice. But by and large, but everything else was true. You know, we can argue about the dragons and the talking mice, but all the events described in the book were absolutely true. Since then, the books I write about a family and, and a dog set in a village very like this one, and they're realistic. The dog doesn't talk. You know, we, we gather how the dog feels by looking at the dog's behaviour, not because the dog, you know, has magical powers or anything, and the kids react how I think kids react. Um, so it's more true. I, 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 I find it fascinating to try and work out, you know, what a child or what a person would do if that happened, if this factor was thrown in, if that thing happened, if this person was like this. So it's a sort of psychological puzzle, which sounds very grand. I don't mean it like that. But it, but that's sort of, you know, why do they say that? And what are they going to do now? And, and how is this going to work out? And I was asked by an eight-year-old girl at one of the book fairs, she said, how do you know how it feels to be eight? And I said, well, because I still am eight. I'm just all the other years as well. I haven't forgotten what it's like to be eight because it's part of me. And anyway, you're the same when you're eight as when you're 62. It's just that you get extra stuff loaded in there as well. We don't really change that much. You know, I wouldn't say, I wouldn't put on my business card that I'm a storyteller. I'm a journalist. I'm, I'm nosy. I want to know. So if I have to make up a story to find out why, then fine. <laughs> Does that make any sense to you? Makes a lot of sense. It's a very interesting way of looking at things because indeed storytelling can encompass so many different things. It can be, for example, just wanting to get into that imaginative state and create worlds and explore and experiment and just go into the what if territory. So that's why it is very interesting. It's also super interesting that you wouldn't put storyteller on your business card which is something that is happening today. Everybody is a storyteller or wants to be a storyteller, even though they might not really get the full grasp of, of the craft. I think it's more of a trend that became a buzzword. At least working in marketing, it really is yeah, a buzzword. Yeah, and I don't, if I'm honest, I don't really, I mean, I was, you know, a business journalist for a decade, but I, I don't really understand this, you know, marketing and storytelling or storytelling as marketing branding thing. I don't get it. I'm not that bright. Maybe I'm just stupid. I don't understand it. But I mean, I understand, I understand a sort of storytelling, which I try to explain to, I used to try to explain to my corporate readers and advertisers and things who and, and interview subjects when I was interviewing for business, trying to explain how to communicate with people who read and don't actually want to know anything about pensions or tax or employment law because it's bloody boring and difficult and complicated and, and who wants to know that? So you have to make up some way of explaining these theories to them that they get, you know, so using fairy tales to explain, you know, corporation tax or, or whatever people will get it because they understand what, you know, Jack and the Beanstalk means or they they understand the simple story and you can relate it easily. So maybe that's it. But, you know, trying to find a storytelling as a brand creation, I don't know. I do understand what you mean. And, for example, at least from my point of view, 
the way that I think personally about branding, and there's a couple of other professionals who agree with me on this, is focusing on the human side and not on the fancy side. So storytelling as meaning rather than visual glam, if you would call it like that, which is something that people don't really get now, right now. No, the, the best example of storytelling, as I've described it, was I was doing a piece on the value of lawyers to businesses, you know, because most, particularly small businesses, never want to see a lawyer because a lawyer means trouble. And so I, I put the word out to my, you know, contacts in the legal world and said, can you give me a quote? Can you give me a story? Can you, you know, tell me stuff? And one guy, I mean, most people came up with the usual boring old stuff, like risk management and contingencies and hideous words, and nobody knows what they mean. And this young guy called Kevin, somebody, right? I can't remember his surname, Kevin, who was a young lawyer in Manchester, just wrote this piece and sent it to me. And it was brilliant. Um, he said, you need us. You need lawyers. We are your mates with a capital M. And mates was a brand name of condom at the time. He, well, he went on, you know, he explained the analogy and said, you know, we are your condom. We are there to stop trouble starting. We are there to, to keep you healthy and protect you, you know. And, and I mean, it wasn't much longer than that, but it just, I tell you, the, 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 the laughter and the talk about it in Manchester's pubs and bars went on for weeks because it was funny. It was funny. That's the point. It made people laugh because they instantly recognized it. They didn't need anything explaining. And it made them think, oh, my Lord, this lawyer's got a sense of humor. I want to go and see him. So it was an absolute triumph. And he did it very well. I, I, I had hoped that I still had the original uh, piece of paper that he sent, but I'd lost it. But it was great because it used humor and something instantly understandable and universal. It's great. So maybe that's what they mean by storytelling. I don't know. I would I would go more for that kind of approach <laughs> than the overly complicated buzzword filled way of doing things. He told me that his senior partner was furious about it and said, you know, did, made us look ridiculous. And and you know, when I heard, I rang the senior partner and said, no, far from looking ridiculous, you know, everybody's talking about you, but they're laughing at us. I said, no, they're laughing with you. <laughs> you made the joke, you know. And he relaxed after a bit, but he was he was more uncertain about it. But humor, humor takes people a long way, I think. Definitely. Humor, if done well, reveals and relaxes so much. It's it's yeah, it does relax and, and it takes away the sting of, of uncertainty and mystery and being fearful seem to be stupid because you don't understand things that you think everybody understands. And of course, in the end nobody understands it. But everybody's playing the game because nobody wants to look like a fool. Yeah. So once you can prick that bubble and, and everyone realizes that everybody's in the same boat, they can laugh and, and relax about it. I actually want to get back on this point regarding the children's book and this dedication that you have for the younger audience. Is this attitude of accepting life for what it is and wanting the easier, more manageable explanation, like the way children think, is this also a reason why you have this dedication for them? I don't know. I mean, I, I've, I don't have kids. Um, I don't, I never wanted kids. But I like kids because uh, once they're beyond the age of about five where I can really talk to them because they're so clear and they haven't got all the stupid baggage that we've collected over the years, and, you know, as, you, as we get older. They're very clear. They see with piercing sight. I mean, uncomfortably so. You know, they'll ask you questions that make your toes curl sometimes. 
and they don't know that they shouldn't answer those questions. <laughs> so, so the trick is is to be honest and give them an honest answer back, as clear as you can. They're just, to me, they're just small adults. They're not a different species, and they're not stupid. So, if, if you can make your writing, I can't remember now who it was that said clarity is absolutely the best writing. You know, is for children because you have to be absolutely clear. And I've discovered writing my books that they want to, they want emotions. They want to feel upset and terrified and joyful and ecstatic and confused. And they want all those emotions in, in bucket loads. Um, they want to cry and they want to laugh. And he, adults tend to be more afraid of emotions. I think we find them difficult. So writing for children is actually very, it's a, you know, it's a release from the adult rules. And it's and it's a call for absolute honesty, which I really like. That's something that I got as well from uh, from your writing that it's a uh, it's going back to the source. It, well, it's again common experience. You know, we're all like that until we get spoiled. It's not the child that's spoiled; it's the adult. You know, we get. I mean, uh, usually through no fault of our own. You know, stuff happens. Life happens to us. So, and we forget how to be. A child. It was Matisse who said something like, I'm paraphrasing, but it's something like, it takes a lifetime to be able to see clearly through the eyes of a child. You know, that's how he tried to paint with the eyes of a child. You know, he just wanted to see what was in front of him as clearly as possible. I mean, Matisse is, is, I love him. I love his work and I, I love his attitude to life. I think we make life so difficult as adults. We just make life very difficult for ourselves. Sorry, I lost the thread there. Um, well when we are musing on life i think that that tends to happen because there's a lot of questions and then the answers are not necessarily as easy to grasp or maybe they're easy but then we're wondering well how how are we complicating things i think i one of the things you know i said one of the benefits of growing older and also thinking about peace is that my experience of growing older is that I can let lots of things go, you know, drop stuff, like who thinks, what have you, you know, who cares? I mean, some people will like me and some people won't. So there are 7 billion people in the world, you know, if five of them like me, that's probably enough. You know, so it, it, I, I've lost that need to be approved of and liked by everybody, which is quite freeing. And again, I've uh, completely lost the thread of why I started that. But it's also, you know, it helps one to be more peaceful because you don't have, you're not spending so much time worrying what people think. No, and then you can just be yourself. Yeah, but actually thinking about it, kids at a much earlier age than when I was a child start worrying about what people think. You know, the number of children that have plastic surgery at the age of eight or something insane. You know, they, they worry about fashion and wearing the right clothes and being seen with the right people and saying I'm being cool. You know, you think it's time for that once you've grown up. It's a shame. And even then it's debatable if it's needed, but... Oh, it's not, it's not needed at all. It's nonsense. I mean, the whole fashion industry and everything associated with it is fear. It's all about fear of not being good enough, you know, uh, wanting to be better, wanting to be smarter or prettier or... drives me mad. I mean, partly because I would never fit into that category of looking glorious, but it really annoys me when... No, but also when people... When people do look glorious, they don't feel glorious on the inside. So it's more of a make-believe, which, you know, after after a dinner or an evening out where people take your pictures, you need to put that 
all behind and still look at yourself in the mirror. So I'm not really sure how much it helps. You know, you're quite right. You know, it was very well known, dissected and pulled apart. But, you know, some of the world's most rich and famous and beautiful people, successful, apparently successful people, are, you know, riddled with self-doubt and self-loathing and, you know, kill themselves, for heaven's sake, because they think they're rubbish. And it's only a matter of time before the world finds out that they're rubbish. And that's not right. <laughs> it's just not right. So, yeah, I think I think that fear is not acknowledged. It's it's a huge part of our culture, and I don't think it's acknowledged enough. The marketeers make sure that we feel fear in a subtle way. Trust me, I know. <laughs> <laughs> Again, speaking from the inside, but that's exactly the point. On the on the brighter side of that, I see that professionals in marketing, some of them, again, maybe just a handful, but a beginning is a beginning. They're beginning to see that, like the, the, the ripple effect of leading by fear and inducing fear in people. And they notice that actually that doesn't improve sales numbers, which is ultimately what people want in their company, or at least what most people think they want in the company. So I'm, I'm a bit hopeful about that. And the coronavirus thing might might boost that a bit because, you know, we're not out there buying stuff. Well, actually, a lot of people are ordering stuff on Amazon or whatever, getting home deliveries because they need their stuff, you know. They've got to have their stuff. I mean, not all of us. I mean, nobody will deliver up here, so I'm free of all that. <laughs> nobody wants to come to Magora. But, yeah, that fear of not being good enough might change, you know, the drive for stuff and the consumerist, materialistic attitude to life. Be interesting to see if that will change at all. And if people have realised, you know, what they're being, the, the lines they've been driven down, you know, believing they have to work, do this job and do what they're told and get a new car every three years. Follow this path. Yeah, you know, work like a slave, get a mortgage, pay, always in debt, you know, striving, struggling, fighting, battling, not spending time with your kids, not seeing friends, not even knowing yourself, you know. Maybe maybe this lockdown thing will help. Who knows? Fascinating. Did you see this also, by the way, in your neighbors? No. <sighs> Since you live in Magura, which is not the typical cosmopolitan community, or I don't know how to how to put it. I don't think these people are in the rat race, as people in Bucharest, for example. No, of course not. You know, they're cosmopolitan. Um, they, they, this is why I, I felt at home because they're the same as the people who are my neighbors in, in rural West Sussex. You know, they, they grew their garden, they grew their vegetables, they looked after their patch, they looked after their families as best they could. Most of them didn't visit a big city, let alone leave the country. And it's still much the same here because um, people don't have the money. They don't have the available money. And the young people have mostly left and either gone down to the local town or gone, gone to Madrid or New York or London or Berlin or wherever to do other work and, and have absolutely no intention of coming back to live the life of their parents, you know, looking after animals, getting up at six o'clock every day to milk the sheep and spend hours backbreaking work doing the quasa every year. You know, it's it's... It's they they won't do it. Um, they want the bright lights and, and the gadgets and the glittery stuff, which I think is really sad because eventually, well, a lot of them will reach the age of forty odd and they've got kids and they'll think, oh, now I it'd be nice to go back and, and live in the country again. But of course they can't because they, you know, when their parents died, they sold the land and that's that. It's happened in Britain. It's happened all over Europe, all over the world, and it's it's a shame it's happening here too. Um, so the young people want smart, shiny stuff and smartphones and jazzy clothes and bling and 
cars and stuff, money, and the old people carry on with their lives. So there's a big generation gap. I think this is the young, you know, in their 20s, maybe early 30s, are the first generation to go to university from these sort of villages. Most likely. And then it's very hard to drag them back until it's too late. Well, one interesting thing that is happening uh, in Romania, at least with people from my generation, so late 20s, early 30s, maybe even going further into the 40s, they do want to go back. There's a rediscovery movement happening in Romania, whether it's sewing traditional blouses like the Ies. There are more women making all of these specific gatherings for for women, for example, so the Shezatoare, which were traditional and happening, I think, on a weekly basis in rural areas in the country. And now they're bringing that back in urban centers. I definitely know that there's something like that happening in Brasov. Interesting. But I think they're more more over the country. There are people that are going, for example, in Tulcha or around the Tulcha area in the south. There are people who are restoring houses to the traditional architectural design that those houses were supposed to have. They're restoring them. They're putting them out for, for tourism afterwards or doing some kind of trying to do some kind of business with them or around them. Some of them, of course, living living on the countryside as well. I know quite some friends that have moved. So they they were from Brasov, but they have moved to the outskirts, maybe to like the, the neighborhoods around because they want to embrace exactly the lifestyle that you said, like this slower paced, closer to nature way of living in which they can actually enjoy and not just strive and fight and go crazy, basically, but trying to achieve something all the time. So in, in that sense, it's, of course, again, it's not necessarily the general trend, but I do see that there is a strong movement of going back to the roots and picking up, of course, I don't think my generation will be so happy to do things exactly like our parents used to or our grandparents used to. Well, you don't need to. This is the great thing. I mean, somebody's got to, to, to do the kwasa, someone's got to cut the hay. Except, do they? You know, are people eating uh, meat to the same extent? Do we still need to feed the cows and the sheep? You know, vegetarians and vegans are on the rise, even in carnivorous Romania. I mean, it's. I find it extraordinary that in rural, well, not rural Romania, but, you know, in Magura, they couldn't conceive of a decent meal without meat. I mean, post is a very difficult period for people here. You know, no dairy, no meat. They really struggle. It's a punishment. And... In Brasov, there are raw vegan restaurants. It's fantastic. So, yeah, things are changing. And with with the internet, you can run a decent business and earn a decent amount of money from anywhere. I mean, I sit in Magura. I mean, I can't say I'm running a, a, a successful business. I'm earning a pittance as a writer, but there you go. But I'm still able to do it here, you know, and that was inconceivable 20 years ago. So the internet might might be the saving of these kind of villages because people can go and get an education, I mean, formal and otherwise, go and live abroad for a bit, learn stuff, uh, come back and, and, and exploit it back in, you know, where they, where they came from, where their parents came from. I think more people are looking at different ways of education, educating their children. Hallelujah. You know, they're getting out of the usual rut of forcing information into people's heads that they don't want. You know, setting up the equivalent of free schools in the UK, you know, independent schools, and living a different way of life. Why, why not? It's possible now. Anything, almost anything is possible. And as people get to know that and realise they can have it all, almost all, more people will come back. It's, it's just they realise it in time before, you know, the European... I'm, I'm, before I say this next bit, which is a criticism, I am passionately pro-EU. I'm 
don't even start talking to me about Brexit. Uh, the one thing, big problem I have with the EU is their agricultural policy. I actually think stinks in a lot of cases. Honestly, yes. For for Bulgaria and Romania, and I'm not sure about Croatia, but definitely for Bulgaria and Romania, it has been uh, to the detriment of the local traditions, the local customs, and the way that people want to make their food and how they live even, I would even say. Uh, yeah, it's how you buy food, what happens to the food. You know, it's, I mean, people have said to me, she says as vaguely as that, that France is the only one that's benefited <laughs> I don't understand why. I don't understand the economics economics of, of agriculture, but it's it needs serious looking at. Um, and it needs much more latitude in how people choose to to grow food and and run the run the planet, if you like. I actually have a really good example of of that because I'm following some farms on Facebook from Romania, and which is great. They are posting a lot of updates about what they do, what kind of policies they're running against. And there was one farmer, I'll never forget this. There was one farmer that was talking about how he was very frustrated and angry with the European law that was imposed on him because he was saying, well, I cannot use, for example, the leftovers from the tea that we make naturally and use them as compost. And that is actually more beneficial for the soil and the plants and whatever. And that is proper bio food because I need to have this kind of fertilizer and this kind of, I don't know what kind of treatment for the plants that is not as natural and not as good and and not as nutritious. And it's ridiculous. And then because I use these traditional methods that are proven to work and they're good for us and for everybody, actually, I cannot do that because there is a law that says that I have to do things differently that doesn't take into consideration the the benefits of what I'm doing and how I'm doing and the tradition and the, the, the legacy in the end. So for me, that was such an eye-opening way of seeing things. Of Because, for example, there was also a discussion at one point between me and some friends. Like I came up with this idea. as like, why does Romania not have superfoods? Because traditionally, we don't. We don't talk about things as superfoods. It's because we know, traditionally again, we knew where to place each item. We knew what kind of strengths, for example, garlic has compared to the leurdo, which I don't remember. It's called something like the bear's garlic or something like that. Uh, yes, I don't know what the. I think I think it, maybe it's Ramson's. I don't know. I love leurdo. It's nearly time for it. I can't wait. Most delicious. Yeah, Ramson's. Exactly, exactly. So we knew where to place all of these ingredients into our diet in a way. And we didn't need the idea of superfoods because in the end, that's just a marketing strategy to make you buy X, Y and Z from whatever company. Yes. I mean, the, the Romanian diet now in, in rural areas like this is sugar, meat, more sugar, more meat. Some oil, some potatoes, sugar, meat, and yeah, no, <laughs> that's not the one that I'm that I was thinking about. But I do know, like, it's very different. It came from not being able to choose, not being able to get meat, um, you know. And they work a lot of hours, you know, physically outside, and they need the sugar. For, but it's now gone beyond a joke. They don't. My neighbours don't eat vegetables. They they grow lettuce, but they put it in soup. They don't eat anything raw. You know, they pull faces. If I if I give them a mange to, you know, a little sugar fat pea, they 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 look at it and I say, eat it, and they're looking at me as if to say, are you mad? It's raw, and they taste it. And I mean, I love them. I sugar snaps and mange too. I love them. They're delicious. They're sweet and tender and yummy. 
but they pull their faces and spit it out and say, oh, no, because they're not used to it. And they're used to being able to have meat now. So it's partly circumstances and partly choice. Sugar's nice, you know, but the, the incidence of diabetes and tooth rot, my God, nobody has teeth up here. Everyone's got false teeth um, over a certain age. And, um, you know, it's not a good diet. But, you know, the agricultural, going back to the agricultural policy, yes, I mean, all those ridiculous things about fertilizers, stupid little rules that make no sense. But also here, you know, um, the sheep are just about to go up to Kurumatura in Katakrado. And all the, you know, the, the sheep and the goats and the cows will be in a stunner somewhere. And because the place is overrun with bears and wolves, <laughs> which aren't that common in Brussels or Strasbourg, you know, the shepherds have dogs. I mean, you, I don't need to explain to you. I mean, these dogs are big and they're fierce. And Europe is now saying, oh, you've got too many dogs for the size of your uh, stunner. You know, you don't need that many dogs. Try being up, you know, in the middle of bloody nowhere with bears and wolves sniffing about your camp trying to get at your livelihood and then say you haven't got enough dogs. I mean, oh, and the fact that they want them all to have, you know, hot and cold running water and electricity. Hello. <laughs> it's, they've never been there. And they want them to sell their milk, not to the the local, the, the owners of the, of the sheep and the cows and, you know, people at the local market, but to Danone. You know, they want to sell to Dano and in front, or in Hungary, I think is the nearest one, the big factory there. What? It's it's ludicrous. They just, you know, people say, well, what's the point? And they give up and they go and work on the buses or, you know, work at Verpitar or whatever it is that they go and do because they can't live the life that their generations and generations for the last 1,300 years have lived their life. And that sort of thing makes, that's the one thing about Europe that makes me absolutely furious because it's happened all over Europe. It's happened in Britain too. You know, these traditional ways of life have gone and it's a lack of understanding, you know, the, the overriding necessity for health and safety. Indeed. I, I do agree with that. And I think a lot of people would from that perspective. Of course, the European Union has its benefits. It was created for a purpose, but I do think that if we are all in this kind of reflection state due to the due to the lockdowns and everything maybe they should have one too yeah i bet they wish they could you know i mean i'm as i say i'm entirely pro eu um even with all its you know duplication and possibly probably corruption or laziness uh, you know, it's a huge organisation, and of course, it needs massive reform and stripping out. But the concept of it, you know, for peace and for cooperation and and the bigger picture and all those wonderful things, you know, far outweighs, um, you know, relatively minor concerns about things that not don't go well. It's so important, to Europe, and I'm I'm I still can't believe that we're leaving um, or have left. I still can't believe it. Anyway. I went into a complete meltdown um, in 2016. I, it took me days to actually process what had happened in the referendum. So I'm, and I'm very glad to be living here. Well, I, you know, Britain's gone into a death spiral. It's, I don't know what's happening there anymore. It's all going horribly wrong. So, yeah, I, Romania's on the way up and Britain seems to be on the way down. At the moment. Everything in life needs to rise and fall sometimes. Yeah, yeah, of course it does. And, uh, you know, that's the flow of the world. That's human life. And on the long scale, it it doesn't really matter, you know, we come and we go. 
but in my short life here, I'm, I'm pleased to be living here now. As I was to go to Liverpool when everyone thought it was rubbish, and 20 years later, oh, entirely due to my having gone to live there, of course, you know, it was capital of culture and it was on the way up. It was cool. And so I'm doing the same here. I've arrived in Transylvania. I, all the problems will solve themselves because I'm here. I am joking. I am curious. <laughs> I actually am curious about what are the top two, three lessons that Transylvania taught you or you learned during this time in Transylvania? Firstly, that most people are the same, really. But most importantly, I think that living in the middle of the continent has given me a completely different perspective on politics, on Europe, on life in general, and Britain. Completely different perspective. It's, it's um, as I say, I'm very happy to be living on the continent, you know, amongst a much broader spectrum of people um, that don't all think that where they happen to live is the best thing since sliced bread. I mean, I love Britain. And it's my home. And it's made me what I am. And it's full of amazing stuff and has given the world a great deal. It's also taken a lot from the world. And some of its attitudes, you know, the xenophobia and the and the sort of jingoistic attitudes that Britain is marvellous and everywhere else is rubbish, I find really offensive now. So, yeah, the, that change of perspective has, has um, made me rethink an awful lot of things. Coming back to the countryside, again, has reminded me that life isn't all urban. It's just made me, it's just given me a massive education, which is probably the number one benefit. And also, you know, being able to go back to my childhood, you know, because it's so like where I grew up. So it's, it's like a little time machine. Fascinating. I wanted to ask, maybe based on the, this huge lesson that you, uh, you're taking out of your Transylvanian experience, what advice could you impart with other internationals that are curious to know more about Romania? And what should they know or do to make their quest productive? What I notice on Facebook, to which I'm addicted, to my shame, but it is quite useful, is that a lot of people, when they ask, you know, where should we go? We're, we're coming to Romania in summer or whenever. Where should we go? And the advice is always to go to Cluj or Brasov or Bucharest or whatever. And I just want to scream at them, get away from the cities. <laughs> cities have nothing to do with Romania. I mean, yes, they do. But, I mean, a city is a city is a city. They're all the same now, the world over, much of much of much. Just get out into the rural areas, go to the villages, stay with real people, you know, find a homestay, go and eat real food with real people and see how life is and get out of, of the big conglomerations of humanity and, and go and see the landscapes and how life is lived because you'll, you'll have a time machine then. Of course, it depends what people want. But if I was saying, if you're coming to explore the place either for a week or as a possible place to live, I would say explore the rural areas. Do it properly. Well, you see real Romanians, you know, how they've lived for a thousand years or more in, this, in little villages like this. You know, life hasn't changed. It's starting to change dramatically, but it hasn't changed much in about 1300 years. And, and you get a much better sense of who the people are and, you know, how how they've become those people over that length of time. And now, you know, the car can get anywhere, pretty much. Why stay in a city? Why not go and live here or anywhere between here and Bucharest? And if you want to commute to the city, you can commute, go and see theatre or do whatever you want, work there. I, I just think there's so much more to explore than, than the cities. So that's my key piece of advice. You know, take your laptop and go and live in the middle of nowhere and have a good life. Kind of speaks to the idea of slowing down as well that we were mentioning before. Yeah, of course it does. It's, 
you know, the air is cleaner, the water is cleaner, the food, you can grow your own food, you can get, you can combine the best of the past with the best of the present and the future. Can't ask more than that, can you? Really? Definitely. And it's a beautiful recommendation. I I second it. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I'm not saying anything against cities, but I, I, I don't care for cities anymore, any cities. I've lived in cities for 30 years and that's enough. Thank you. Uh, I think it's a shame if people come and don't explore what the country really is and give themselves a chance to breathe. People come here. I mean, the British ambassador and family came here for tea last summer. And they got out of the car and he said, it's Narnia and the Hobbit all rolled into one. I not believe it. And people who've lived, Romanians who've lived in Brashov all their lives, come up here. And they get out of the car and said, I had no idea this was here. I had no idea this was hidden away here. This will, they, they discover a paradise, basically, in their backyards. Everyone's missing. I mean, whether it's mountain or the, you know, the, the, the Saxon villages in the, in, in between Sibi and Brashov, which are completely different culture and architecture and everything about it is different. Um, or they go to the Hungarian areas. You know, it's the, there are at least three or four Romanians. If you go to some of the gypsy villages with respect, you know, you, you find four, separate cultures keeping them and that's just in transylvania and that's just a part of transylvania let's put it even like that yeah so i mean i don't know the south and the west of the country um at all really but again all these cultures i'm the same with britain you know yorkshire is very different to scotland is very different to cornwall and, and it's all completely nothing to do with london so there's a lot to explore here it's 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 under Unknown, you know, it's not known, well known. It's a hidden secret, and I feel very smug living here. When my visitors come and say, oh, "You're so lucky," and I go, "Yes, I am." <laughs> I'd be very clever. No, I'm not. It's it's just been one of those very lucky moments in life that have worked out very well. So it's needless to end this interview with me asking you if you like it in Romania. <laughs> you can ask, <laughs> and my answer would be no. I hate it here. Horrible place. Perfect. <laughs> also then going to ask, when are you leaving? When are you going back to Britain? I would say not for a while. I mean, you can't, never say never, but I cannot in, imagine a circumstance which would make me go back to Britain, unless the Romanians got fed up with me and threw me out. But I don't think I'd go back to Britain. I think I'd go to Tasmania or somewhere. I don't know where I'd go. I'm pretty sure you're good for at least a couple of years. <laughs> yeah, I imagine so. Uh, Romanians have been very welcoming. Um, to us Brits and very supportive, you know, through Brexit. And I only had one nasty comment saying, now you know what it feels like. Ha, 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 ha. Everybody else has been really kind and supportive and saying, don't worry, we want you, which is nice. Um, not every country in Europe has been so kind. So, yeah, no, very lucky. I'm very, very lucky. I'm very happy to be here. And on that note, Arabella, thank you so much for your time. You're more than welcome. It's been lovely talking to you. That's a wrap for episode 10 of the Wonders Podcast. If you like this episode, don't forget to share it with others on social media or just talk about it. We heard that word of mouth is the most honest form of marketing, by the way. And speaking of word of mouth, we recommend you read Arabella's books, which are full of honest personal reflections and life-related musings. Just search your name online and see which bookstore close to you has the books on offer. 
We also would like to mention that this season, you will probably find us only on podcast platforms and on our website because our guests are talking about the coronavirus pandemic and YouTube's policy around who gets to share content about this topic has been not so creator friendly. So you'll find us here on your podcast app of choice and on our website, www.woandersers.com. That is www.wonders.com. We'll see you in the next one. Smiling in the back. Seeing you in the next one. That was a very soft mouth.